This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and today is the next installment in our series titled The Story. We're journeying through the scriptures and looking at the accounts of major events to teach us about God's story. In this message, Pastor Jeff Fines talks about the existence of God, miracles, and the tales of the Israelites after God rescued them from Egyptian slavery. You can find this series and many more messages wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines. For now, let's hear from Pastor Jeff. This is Today with Jeff Fines. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I have noticed that in most of the conversations, now I, didn't, I did not say all, but most of the conversations I have with people who say there is no God, that if I talk to them long enough and I'm patient enough and I'm loving and kind enough and don't get defensive, that usually there is some other source down deep inside that is causing uh, what they believe to be a rational decision that there is no God. I, see, what I haven't told you is when I was a little boy, I had severe asthma. And we didn't know that cats was a major cause. So every time my aunts and uncles would come over and bring their cats, I would go into asthma attacks. And when you're a kid and you have an asthma attack, you think you're dying. So I did not know that I had done some kind of Freudian thing where I had identified evil cats and death together. And so I had made a mistake. I'm simply saying that there are many, many atheists, many people that I meet with, not all, not all, many that I meet with, that as we talk more and more, they begin to realize, as do I, that their decision to not believe in God is not a rational one, not a mere rational one, I should say, but it happens because God didn't do something in their past that they felt he should have done, or more often than not, this person has a shaded past, and there's a lot of uh, immorality in their lives, and for them to believe that God exists would hold them accountable for their immorality because they don't understand the doctrine of grace, okay? And so here's what they do. They shout louder and louder. Think about it. I mean, it's amazing to me how many people spend so much time debunking somebody who's not there. I mean, some people dedicate their entire lives to saying there's no God. Well, why do you, if there's no God, why do you talk so much about him? I mean, I don't believe in aliens, but you don't see me writing papers or, or writing a blog or writing things that there are, aliens don't exist, okay? They don't. They don't exist. I don't talk about them. It's kind of like William Shakespeare's play, Methinks Thou Dost Protest Too Much. And so you think the louder you scream there is no God, that these feelings of guilt or whatever it is down inside you will go away, but they never do. And so you just keep shouting louder so that your ears are deafened 
to what you know to be true. Now, I didn't say every person I meet is like that or every atheist is like I just said that most of the conversation I've had end up with a hurt or a wound somewhere that only God can heal. Now, the reason I say that is because we're in the story and we come to a time when we've seen a lot of miracles. But can I ask you a question? Miracles aren't that hard to believe if, if you believe in God, right? I mean, if you start with the presupposition there is no God, you're going to have a hard time believing in anything miraculous. You're going to think everything's fantastical. No matter what you see, if the mind is bent toward this direction, doesn't matter how much proof you're given, you're still going to go down the road of no God. But if you believe in God, and I do believe it's still the most rational decision to make because nobody's ever told me how something came from nothing. I don't care how smart you are. You're never going to answer that one. That miracles are possible. God exists. Miracles are possible. We come to a time in the story when God leads his children out of Egypt. He's kept his promise to Abraham. He's used Joseph and Moses. And I love that because he takes Joseph out of a wilderness, puts him in a palace. He takes Moses out of a palace, puts him in a wilderness. He can use anybody, anytime, in any place he wants. And he keeps his promise to Abraham. And then he pushes the pause button. And he says, hold everything, everybody, out of the pool. Listen to what I'm going to say. And he gives his people ten precepts by which to live. Why does he do it? Now, I'm assuming that all of you know the Ten Commandments. Although I read an article that told me that 49% of you cannot say four of them in one minute. I'm going to take for granted that's other people. (laughs) That you know the Ten Commandments. The question is, why does God give Moses and his people these 10 precepts? And why does it matter if I keep them or not? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 that no man shall be justified by the law. Well, if I can't be justified or made righteous by the commandments, why would I keep them? Why do I keep them and why did God give them? There's a beautiful passage. Folks, I had to choose from a wide, exhaustive area of narratives. I chose Exodus 19. And in six short verses, man, it will, if you will stay with me, it will illuminate something for you. It will tell you something about heaven that I'll bet you didn't know before now. Let's go. Verse one. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. I told you that every time you read a Hebrew narrative, When they give you details, it's not just to fill up space. There's a reason that he tells you that they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So God leads his people right to the end of the wilderness. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Why does he does that? Let me tell you why he does that. In ancient world, we know, historians tell us, we know with certainty that human cities began in Mesopotamia. In that time, in that place. And these human cities had something in common. They were always built near a mountain. So ancient cities, the first cities known to man, were built either on the hillside next to the mountain. If you inherited land that was not near a mountain, and that was your family's land, then you would build what they call ziggurats. And a ziggurat was a man-made mountain. It was like a pyramid. It was like, it wasn't really a temple. It was just a place that was high and lifted up next to the city. Why was that important? Because in the ancient civilization, you felt that in order to reach God or the gods, you had to ascend. Okay? So if you didn't have a mountain and you wanted God to be easily accessible, 
So you built the cities near the mountains. So when you needed God, you could climb up the mountain and say, here, God, look what I did. Now bless me. If you didn't live near a mountain, you built a ziggurat, which was some form of a temple. You'd go to the top and you say, here, God, I brought out my sacrifices or gods. I brought the sacrifice. Now rain down your blessings on me. God brings the children of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he's going to teach Moses something valuable. He's going to say, you don't ascend for me to bless you. I'm going to descend. But right from the get-go, now you, you think about this. You, 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 you dads, you've coached your sons in baseball, right? Or, or maybe your daughters. And you know, uh, you know how much they like to please you, right? Now my son Delaney, my, he's a very good athlete, but he's not really motivated. Your dads have a kid like that? Just not quite motivated. Even though he was my best baseball player on the Little League baseball team, he just wasn't quite motivated. So I would do what any good dad does. I would bribe him. And I would say, son, I say, son, if you give me your best effort, now I didn't say, notice I didn't say if you get two or three hits or if you make this play. No, I'd never do that. But I said, if you give me your best effort, that's all I ask, no matter what happens. If you give me your best effort, there will be ice cream after. And I remember this one game, Delaney hit a home run and he was running around the bases as slow as possible. Because you don't want to exert any more effort than you have to. And as he's running around the bases, he's looking at me the whole time. Hey, look, did you see that, Dad? Dad, did you see that? Second, third, Dad, did you, ice cream, ice cream. Okay, in an in in immature way, this is exactly what the ziggurat of the mountain was about. God, look at me. Now, here I am. I've come to you. I've done something good. I brought you something. Now, bless me. Now, here's, we'll come back to that. Verse 3, and the Lord called to him Moses from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How much time do you have? This is beautiful. It's a beautiful metaphor of two things, of trust and provision. Here's what he's saying. He's saying to Moses, Moses, come on up the mountain, but no, right from the get-go, here's what I want you to tell the people. I brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. A mother... Eagle will put her little baby eagles on her wings and then she will drop them so that they'll learn to fly. If they don't fly, she will swoop down because she can gain incredible speeds up to 80 miles an hour. She will drop down, catch them on her wings so that they will learn to trust her and so that they will know that she has their best interest in mind. Now, there are all kinds of uh, research been done on the various types of flying by various types of birds. You know, some birds flap. I mean, they're ugly flying. You ever seen ducks try to take off? It's like hop, skip, hop. I tell Dane Johnson all the time, man, your golf swing's like a wounded duck. I mean, it just looks terrible. Work on it, brother. And so, and you got some birds that just glide. You know, they just glide. They gather speed and they glide. They're a little bit more uh, beautiful. You know, hummingbirds flap a lot, but they're graceful. But then there's the eagle. He doesn't glide. He doesn't flap. He soars. What does that mean? Well, he's able to catch these rising currents of air, what they call thermal winds that go straight up from the earth's surface. He can catch them and he can go high enough to soar for miles and miles without ever flapping his wings. And it's a beautiful sight. He catches current after current. He's been clocked again at over 80 miles per hour, rocketing through the air. Not a care in the world, just these invisible columns of air, just floating, no effort. Beautiful, a magnificent picture. Here's what God is saying. Moses, before I give you these precepts, this is all a setup. I've taken you to the feet or the foot of the mountain. And I want you to know, tell the people of Israel, I brought you out. Now stay with me. I brought you out of Egypt. What are you doing when you're soaring on eagle's wings? Nothing. Nothing. You're just enjoying the ride. 
He says, you tell them I brought you out. I delivered you. I set you free. I rescued you. They were not warriors. They were bricklayers. You didn't defeat a great army. I opened the Red Sea. I brought you out because I love you. I did everything for you. No fighting was necessary. Don't you find it interesting that God first delivers them and then gives them the law? He doesn't give them the law and then deliver them. So the law can't be so that God will deliver you. He delivers you first. So what's the purpose of the law? What is the purpose? Why does he give it to us? He gives it to us because he says, Moses, I'm about to give you 10 precepts. And right before I give you these precepts, I want you to remember on the basis of what I've done for you in the past, deliverance, you can trust me for what I will do in the future. Keep my commandments. Why? Why? Hey, you know, I did not learn how to swim until I was 15 years old. 15. My mom was afraid of water. And so you pass your fears on to your next generation. Boy, that's a deep sermon right there. That could go on forever. My father was furious. My father was furious because my father was a great swimmer. And he was furious with my mom that she was, she was so terrified of water. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. And so she kept us away from it, all four of her boys. Then there was a problem when I was 15. I met a girl. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed wonder from East Tennessee. Her favorite thing to do was swimming. And there was no way that I was going to tell her I did not know how to swim. But you can only lie so much to a woman who has a pool in her backyard as to why you're not coming to visit her. <laughs> no, it, it runs out. And so my dad put his arm around me and said, son, listen, don't tell your mother. That was my dad. Said, don't tell your mom. I mean, my dad did some crazy things, I got to tell you. Now, I, I know this is going to disappoint a lot of you. But my dad, you know, my mom uh, had an alcoholic father. And... Uh, she just could not stand any alcohol in the house. But my dad kept a bottle of Jack Daniels in his uh, top dresser drawer. He did that for municipal purposes. <laughs> and when he got, and I remember a couple times I got the flu and I had a basketball game the next day and he'd say, come here. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I thought it was NyQuil. <laughs> you know, I just know it burned going all the way down. And I felt good the next day. <laughs> and so, and so. My dad says, I'm going to teach you how to swim. So we go out to the swimming pool and he gets on the side rails and he says, son, there's only, there's one of two ways we can do this. Let me tell you the easiest way. The easiest way is for you simply just to dive on in, just jump in. The good Lord made your body in a way that if you just start flapping and kicking sooner or later, you'll come up for air sooner or later and you'll start swimming. Now that's the easy way. Just dive on in. The hard way is we go through lessons day after day, week after week, and I teach you to kick and I told you, just jump in, man. God will teach you to swim. And just in case he does it, which always bothers me, which always bothers me. He said, God will do this, but in case he does it, that was what, in case he does it, I'm right here and I am a great swimmer and I will rescue you until you get it right. Well, it bothered me. I was 6'4", 200 pounds. He was about 5'7", 130 soaking wet. I didn't believe my dad. So he did what any honorable dad would do. He pushed me in. <laughs> but I remember my dad saying, son, if you don't jump in that water, you will never know what it's like to experience the cool, crisp feeling of cold water in a July summer with 100% humidity. You'll never know what it is to feel and to swim in cold, cool water. That's kind of what God is doing with Moses. He said, Moses, I'm about to give you 10 precepts, but understand something. I'm not trying to put you in a straitjacket. I'm not trying to bind you. I'm trying to get you to understand something that on the basis of I delivered you and brought you out on eagle's wings in the past, my intention is to help you fly on eagle's wings all of your life. If you will just obey my commands, you will know what it is to soar all of your life. 
The first thing you need to know is that we obey because the commands we discover deliverance. Now, can I take a time out and then I'm going to do the last two and they're quick. But can I say something to you that I've never said, I don't think I ever said to you before. In America, we have domesticated God. We've made him tame. God is not tame. And it is a fearful thing to come under the judgment of the living God. Yes, he's a God of grace. Yes, he's a God of love and mercy. But he's also a God of judgment and justice. When I first took the job here in 2008, February, April 7th, 2008, there was a bear trainer that lived in Big Bear who trained grizzlies. I think it was grizzlies. Okay, let's just say bears just for safety. One of the bears was in a movie with Will Ferrell. He actually wrestled the bear in the movie. And this young man, Stefan Miller, age 39, had been training this bear for a long, long time. And just one day, the bear just reached over in a training session and bit him on the neck and he died. Denise Richards was on the set. I read her comment. She said, you know, you can train bears all you want, but you're still taking a chance when you step inside the ring. Apologetics is the science of defending God. Some may call it an art. I think we go too far in trying to make God look good in our world. We make him benign because we think we have to defend why God would do some of the things he did in the Old Testament, forgetting how corrupt some of those Old Testament tribes were and sacrificing their own children on hot, burnt altars. And God can't win with most of us because on one hand we say, God, we don't believe in you because you don't fight the injustice in the world. And on the other hand, God fights the injustice. We say, God, I don't believe in you because you're not a God of love and mercy because we think they're separate. We think they're mutually exclusive. The God of the Bible says this to you and me. I love you. You're in my kingdom by grace and mercy. But when you violate my law, I will come after you. But I'll do it in love to restore you and everybody around you. I'm reading a book. Interesting man. Drew Dyke. He says, yes, God is dangerous. He is not a house cat. He is a lion. And you are free to deny his existence or pretend he's harmless. Go ahead and pet him if you like. Just don't expect to get your arm back. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Yes, God will forgive you. He loves you. He will be merciful and you do not lose your salvation. And the law was never meant to save you. But be sure that when we violate the precepts and principles of God, he cares. And God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. A man, a woman reaps what they sow. And although there's grace and mercy and forgiveness, I can guarantee you some of the things that we do are going to reap ramifications that we're not going to like. And God does not promise to take those away just to forgive you in spite of them. Number one, we obey because within the commands we discover deliverance. Number two, we obey that we might become God's special treasure. Verse five, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. When I first started dating my wife, Robin, I learned everything I could about her because man is on his best behavior before the marriage. I mean, I did research because I wanted to please her, right? I learned that her favorite music group was Toto. So you young people are there, Toto, what? <laughs> 80s group. All good music came from the 80s. Everybody knows that. Toto. Because they did a song called Africa, and she was raised in Africa, so she loved Toto. I learned that she loves animals. Man, that was the hardest part about dating Robin. I mean, even today, there's an iguana in my house. Yeah. 
in my shower, in my bed. I mean, it, uh, don't get me started. But anyway, my, my wife loves dogs, cats. She loves horses. Here's a picture of Robin with her horse. I guess she was about 10 or 12 years old here in, Zim, in Zambia, in the copper belt of Zambia, in Dola. I learned very quickly that you don't say anything bad about her father. Don't do that. And you don't say anything bad about her sister. I mean, she can say things about her sister, but you don't dare say anything. Two months after Robin and I were dating, her sister walks up to me and says, hey, I've been watching you, Jeff, for the last two months, and I've decided that she can keep you. You know, I want to say, what? I don't even, I mean, you're the ugly one. Why do I care what you think? I mean, I just told you what I was thinking. I didn't say, that was what I was thinking back then. Back then, I didn't say that. Okay, I told you I was going to be honest. When, when I started to fall in love with Robin, I researched everything about her, what pleases her, what delights her, and then I just wanted to give it without anything expecting in return. In fact, this is what I've grown to know over 27 years of marriage now, that in real love, you place your happiness and joy into the hands of the other person's happiness and joy. The more in love you get, the more what makes you happy and joyful is when they're happy and joyful. So my wife asked me to go on a horse ride two months into our marriage in the mountains of Inyanga in Zimbabwe. I've never ridden a horse but I was not going to tell her that. Big mistake. I just thought, sure, I'll go on this horse ride. How can it be? You just sit there and ride. No, it's different than that. Thank God I was in the inn so that nobody could see me. Because then she says, let's gallop. And I'm over here like this. And I'm going like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm scared to death. Okay. But I rode the horse. I don't like, my wife still loves horses. I do not like the way my wife smells when she comes home from riding her horse. I, I don't, honestly. I don't like the way she smells when she goes to the barn and cleans up all the horse stuff. I don't like that either. But I can tell you this, when I come home in the evening after a long day of work and I say, sweetheart, what did you do today? And she says, I rode my horse. It brings me such joy and delight to know that she had a good day. And I say to her, Robin, you raised two wonderful kids. I mean, I know you're responsible. Believe me, in spite of me, you did a great job. We got empty nests now. They're out doing their... I said, Robin, ride your horse every day if you want to ride it. Ride it every day. Isn't that weird how that happens? Do you know what God is doing in these precepts? I brought you out on eagle's wings. Trust me. But Moses, this is a love relationship. I am taking, listen now, I am taking you out of Egypt into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, because I love you. You are my people, and I want to give you the delights and joy of your heart. But Moses, I want you and the people to know what it is that delights my heart too. Anytime you tell the truth when you're tempted to lie, anytime you remain content when you're tempted to covet your neighbor's stuff, Anytime you're faithful to your wife when you're tempted not to be. Faithful to your husband when you're tempted not to be. Anytime that you remember the Lord's day and keep it holy when you'd rather be doing something else. Anytime that you follow any of these precepts. Anytime you keep God first. Anytime you have no other idols. Anytime your whole allegiance is with God. And when you're asked for your allegiance to be divided, you say, no, my ultimate allegiance is with God and whatever he requires, that's what I will do. God is saying to Moses, I know what delights your heart, a land flowing with milk and honey. I want you to know what delights mine, these precepts. And every time you do them, my heart races a little faster. My pulse beats a little, and I am so proud. See, that's why you know if you really love God or not. See, if you're just going up to the mountain and saying, look, God, what I have done, I've gone to church three weeks in a row, bless me. 
And then he blesses you, and I don't see you again for about another two years until your life gets bad again. You're still relating to God on an antiquated basis. You still don't know what it is for love and relationship. He says in verse 5, Then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, he says this, However, there needs to be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all the commands I'm giving to you. <laughs> you know what God is saying? There's a way that there'll be no poor among you if you do what I tell you to do. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.